and courageous moment or juncture in the life of any woman or man when she or he chooses to defy the currents that shape our often violent, distracted, greedy and confused world, I feel, and instead address the deeper issues of being born human, mortal, fallible and insecure. The Buddha used many skillful means and many practices to direct the minds and hearts of his nuns, monks and lay people to the preciousness of life and the certainty of death. And this is a brave and courageous path for any woman or man to choose to tread. These death awareness practices as they've been uh, described collectively are in my experience a really powerful tool for undermining the delusion, the falsehood, the absurdity even of thinking that we'll live forever, that our time can be needlessly squandered, that life is distinct from death and that there is a fundamental security to be found within the stuff of this temporal world. In our short time together here today, we can but lightly really touch upon a very few of the rich array of meditations, reflections, contemplations, forms and practices that were taught by the Buddha and are still practiced all over the world in all the different Buddhist traditions today. I've actively worked over the last years with those nine reflections and contemplations that I mentioned earlier that I was introduced to in Cambridge and that I practiced so much in Mount Alban Cemetery um, in Watertown or Cambridge, wherever that is. And I'd like to introduce these uh, uh, to you now and perhaps this afternoon. I have no idea really how the day's going to unfold. You know, you all bring such immense riches and we're going to have an opportunity soon just to hear and be present with one another. So that will determine how our day's going to unfold. But uh, I'd like to at least introduce them now as maybe a way for uh, creating the direction for the, for the rest of the day. There are a few things about these practices that I would like to mention to you today, not so much in their use today, but in their use in your lives. A few cautions. Uh, if you're at a time in your life when you're experiencing extreme highs and lows of emotion, which of course are the seasons that we all go through from time to time, or if you're feeling in any way emotionally unstable, if you have a lot on your plate, then it's possible that these are not practices that you might choose to use in any sort of sustained way right now. There are other practices that I know many of you are familiar with, practices of um, the divine abodes, they call the divine abodes of the Buddha, the practices of the heart, loving-kindness, compassion, forgiveness, um, equanimity practices. Those might be practices that are more skillful at different times. 
It's also a good idea if you choose to use any of these death awareness practices in a sustained way to definitely do it in conjunction with someone who's had a lot of experience. I mean, I'll be speaking this afternoon about my experience at the monastery, and I worked with this wonderful, wizened old Burmese master, you know, who just sort of seemed timeless and ancient, and he had so much wisdom, and he really knew, and it gave me a sense of permission to go into places that I otherwise would have been too scared to go. So working with someone that has experience can be a very important part of this process too. I would not recommend these practices for anybody who's not on some sort of spiritual journey, not necessarily meditation of course, but you know, sometimes we hear these practices and think, oh, you know, I must mention this to so-and-so, and I must mention this to so-and-so, this makes so much sense. But I feel that um, one needs to respect them, because if someone doesn't have a foundation with which to deal with what can be evoked, these practice can, practices can be really very depressing, they can be very overwhelming, and it might be better just not to even interface with them uh, until one has a foundation with which to, to work. You know, I was so grateful that, I am so grateful that I was introduced to meditation like nine years before my diagnosis. You know, what a gift. You know, I mean, just to take the chaos of that diagnosis and, you know, the sense of, of everything falling apart and at least to have it held in the context of a spiritual practice that was already a part of my life was a huge blessing. So to use these practices with, a, with some respect. And it's important also to remember that these practices, in essence, address the very same issue that the meditation practice does. They focus the attention, they alert the mind to the fact that everything is changing. The first teaching of the Buddha after his enlightenment was a teaching on the Four Noble Truths. And one of these Noble Truths is the truth of impermanence. So important and fundamental was this fact that he included it in this teaching on the Four Noble Truths. And these death awareness practices focus the mind, direction the mind towards an appreciation and understanding that everything is changing. And in using these reflections, we use the thought process itself creatively to develop wisdom. So unlike in meditation where if a thought comes, we're aware that thinking has happened, we let it go. Here we actively are going to be using thinking. They're designed to really wake us up, you know, they're very stirring, they're very energizing, or they can be. Your experience will of course be your own, it'll be different this morning as it might be this afternoon or next week. And Usually and often, they engender a sense of the urgency, a sense of the preciousness of life, the urgency for understanding. They are also designed to flesh out fear, particularly a fear of death, so that it can be worked with, that it can be befriended, that it can be brought out into the open. And lastly, and you know, those of you that are familiar with Buddhist texts and scriptures, there are these endless lists of things. Everything is, just, you know, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the Five This and the Twelve That and everything. So the other thing that these are, are designed to do 
are to, and I, I love this, is to counteract arrogance. To counteract arrogance. So, you know, if you look at these practices in terms of those, those guys, you know, the heavenly messengers who came, they are designed to counteract the arrogance of the young by reflecting on old age. I think that's so beautiful. Designed to counteract the arrogance of the healthy by reflecting on sickness and to counteract the arrogance of immortality, thinking we're going to live forever by reflecting on death. Counteracting arrogance. So, I have somewhere hidden around me, like a magician. I have here which um, I'm going to, of course, make available to you um, a listing of these nine. But I'm not going to do it now. I mean, you know, they'll just be here, you know, for you to to use whenever. I don't maybe put them out at lunchtime or afterwards. We'll see. But I do have them. If I forget, because those who know me, I'm a little dizzy. Uh, reminding, don't go home without it. Back the American Express card. <laughs> One of the, one of I think the blessings and also the greatest challenges for me of, uh, you know, of this journey through the cycles, through the cycles of mourning and the cycles of celebration, all the different cycles, is having the courage to listen inwardly to what feels true for you. And the courage then, even greater courage, to honor what you hear and and to and to respond from that and so I would say if you're in active mourning if it were me I would just be sort of peripheral to it for the moment you know the, the, there was one really beautiful thing I heard a Tibetan master say once, you know, he said, even if you don't understand us, even if you don't do it, he said, there is great wisdom in just letting these words pass through your heart. Not even engage them. He said, because there are levels unfathomable within you where it will be registered and the seed will be planted. So it might be that that's all that, that this is for you today. It's just an opportunity just to um, be be present and drop a seed there, you know? I hope that's helpful. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I invite, you know, I invite everybody, you know, to bring forward exactly that kind of question, you know? I mean, that's so central to what we're talking about today. Yeah. thinking like, which one am I going to suggest? <laughs> so, um, 
There are nine, and um, as always, they divide into three different groups. The CPA me liked this one, you know, three groups, three in each, three threes, three squared, you know. <laughs> the first three are about the inevitability of death. The second three are the uncertainty of the time of death. And the third three are the fact that only insight into what is true can help us at the time of death. So what I'm going to offer is one of the reflections on the inevitability of death. And I will provide some guidance in the quiet time that we're going to have together this hour. And then there will be an opportunity for any words that need to come forth uh, after that. And as I, as I say, um, the most important thing is to use this to the degree that feels true for you right now. So I'd like to offer the reflection of our lifespan is decreasing continuously. And you may want to close your eyes if you wish, it's not a prerequisite at all. And just take up the thought, my life is decreasing continuously, all the time. Maybe take that thought into the space of your great heart. And reflect there. I'm going to remind you from time to time to keep breathing. Take deep breaths. Life, my life, our life span is decreasing continuously. Mm. Contemplate this reflection. welcoming of any feelings that come up also. You may want to go to the breath for a few minutes, a few moments. Return to the reflection, my life is decreasing all the time, continuously.
be creative in any way that feels true and present for you. Use this reflection in your own way. You may want to converse with yourself, speculate, draw from the tapestry of your own life. Call images to mind, objects, people, Visualize time moving on, time past. Memories of yourself when you were young, getting older. Healthy and well, then healthy, then well, then sick, then well. is decreasing continuously. Keep breathing. If a feeling arises and it's strong, shift there. Might be an intuition, a sense, a conviction. Investigate what's arisen. Even if it's indifference, boredom, fear. Soak in the feeling. Saturate yourself in whatever this reflection means now. My life is decreasing continuously, moment to moment, decreasing. feel too strong for now, open your eyes softly, just 
responding in whatever way feels kind right now. My life is decreasing continuously. My life is decreasing continuously. Buddhist texts state and quote the Buddha as saying, just as an arrow shot by a skillful archer, as soon as he pulled the string does not waver but quickly reaches its target, so also is the life of humans. There is no moment of hesitation, no pausing, no way to turn around. This life, like a current of a great river, never turning back, it moves on. 
with every breath we take, with every step we take, we are drawing closer to death. Just as a prisoner being led to a place of execution, with every step he comes nearer to death. So also is the life of humans. Increasing continuously. Last few minutes. being present with whatever feeling, emotion is present now, without changing words, present with the truth now. Reflection, any questions? <laughs> 
I don't think I accepted it. I don't think I, I, don't think I accepted it. Huh. Sitting here and I'm fighting it. And, and that's really the reason why I am here. Is that I feel like I've hit a wall. I don't feel I accepted it. Huh. I mean, I, I went through it and I just said, you know, yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <coughs> I still have the Peter Pan complex. Which is? That I, you know, I won't go on. Was there any feeling? Yeah, um, mm-hmm. conflict. Continuing that through. Tension in the chest. Hmm. Um, so, I was getting here because last night I was at a friend's who had cancer. And I was staying all night, and I hadn't seen her since the tumor had come through the skin, which I actually didn't know what happened. And she's this yoga teacher, small, beautiful, graceful woman. I walked in the door, and she said, I have to go change my dressing. Do you want to come and see it? And I said, yeah. And I go up to the bathroom, and she takes off her clothes, and it was horrible, horrible, horrible. Yeah. And she's been seen at this big tumor that's out, and cancer's laying on and she's like all kinds of good treatments, and she's helping all heal. But she and I share our birthday, same day, same year. And um, when I was doing, when I came and sat down and got quiet, because I drove from there, I could suddenly feel she was up in the middle of the night because she thought she took too much pain medication and was worried that she might die because her blood pressure was going down. So she woke me up, and I just massaged her feet for about an hour. <coughs> And I wasn't taking in, I wasn't feeling, I wasn't letting, I was just there with her and I wasn't letting, until I got here and I sat down, I felt, felt, I started to feel, wow. And then I'm also grieving my father, so I sat down and started doing this contemplation and what I felt was vastness, like the immensity of that contemplation somehow really just hit me um, as I thought about I suddenly saw myself. It was very helpful suggestion to see yourself as your own child. Because I'm looking at pictures of me and my dad as he was dying last year, my, I was in my 40s, and me, him holding me up as a six-month-old. Mm-hmm. And just going, I'm still going on tilt. And you're like, where did she go? Different cell, totally. Who is she? So the contemplation really brought up a lot more questions. Like, who am I? And what does? And who? What? <laughs> you know, and seeing my friend's body, and she was lying there clutching pictures of her guru, she's a very deeply spiritual person, and her body was really messed up. But nothing else was. And it's actually gotten more radiant. So it was just, I kept coming back to the phrase as a sort of grounding, but many other rich questions arose and feelings. So I think it's a powerful, you know, the practice I've been before, even during this period, you know. It sounded as though it, it enabled you to ground yourself sufficiently for the questions to arise. So it sounded like it was skillful to use it yeah. at this particular moment.
would like to ask is, after everybody has spoken, we've had two sharings, I'd like to ring the gong and just have a minute of quiet just to be with what's been said before we move on. This is very um, important.
and then all of a sudden that popped into perspective. Oh. <laughs> I think that's one of the one of the incredible you know there are very few blessings of living with AIDS I assure you and I'm you know I, I certainly don't consider myself you know um, to be any different to anyone else we all have our problems but if there's any blessing it's exactly what you're saying it's almost like that, you know, it's like having death on your shoulders, the touchstone against which a lot of stuff bounces and it ricochets off that because is it really important in the end, you know, and just having that, that touchstone, that lightning rod, that reference point is so precious when what is mediocre presents itself as being anything more than that, you know. That's the essence of the practice, is that perspective of of not becoming embroiled in what's not worth it if life is decreasing continually. Why waste time? I know I should do it, but I can't always do, you know. 
I try to, but it's just imperfect.
here to so many teachers and to so many people. What that's about. It, it was such a it was like an outside attraction trying to come forth again from out from inside of myself. And um, in my childhood through all these different things, it, it's like the minute that would come up and my passion would be there. I would believe the lie again that, that you know, I would go back into the illusion again that, that, that I can't really be here. That I can't I can't be here with that. And in the last few months it's it's almost like there's there's no way I can be here without it. And it was such a struggle to, to finally just get dying out. I knew it was my freedom was. And I don't think I'm dying, but I am. You know, as you said, we are. So this is where we get. Thank you. Keep breathing.
so easy to hoodwink. I speak personally, it's so easy for me to hoodwink myself into believing that there is a specific way in which this journey has to unfold. And for me, over the years, I see that the most insidious way that I stand in the path of that unfolding is when I have an opinion of how a particular time needs to rather be. And then eventually kicking and screaming, usually taken by the scruff of the neck, I eventually get to a place of some sort of blessed, merciful acceptance of just where I am and what's not appears to be happening is just part of what I have to accept. And so, in hearing you, I was struck by, by um, a part of me that I try to recognize and I don't for an instant. I'm not for an instant saying that it applies to you, but just to look at whatever part in me where I feel tangled and stuck, where I'm not accepting things exactly as they are, is usually where it's malleable and where it's soft and where there's a potential for growing. And it might be that the grieving needs more time. And it might be that your non-acceptance of the fact that you know you're not experiencing your mortality more vividly and more clearly given that you're the last one in line now is gridlocking and causing so much pain and just bringing a tenderness to the situation rather than a harshness for me always seems to be the way of perhaps disentangling a knot that feels so tight within me just coming to a place of utter kindness and tenderness and sensitivity and patience with myself, it always seems to be the forward edge of possibility for me. Where I'm harshest, <coughs> bringing my heart right there. You know, I sometimes think that that um, maybe I won't speak personally here. The Dalai Lama said recently that the greatest problem facing those of us in the West is the problem of self-love. He said if we could address the issue of self-love, he said everything else will be healed. He said, if we could just be kinder to ourselves, just kinder and gentler and more loving, he said, that is the fundamental issue. And so what that means for me is to look in any situation that feels difficult to where I'm in conflict with myself and where I'm being hard and finding a way to be softer. And it might be, as we spoke earlier, that in using these practices, to use them in a way that feels kinder and that they don't become a way that we persecute ourselves anymore into thinking it should be different, should be happening in a certain way. Just, I'm stuck, you know.
God bless me, you know. every time I, I do something like today is is to ask myself do we as human beings really need to be taken by the scruff of the neck by some wayward virus or some natural calamity or some untoward disaster in order to to face what it means to live a mortal life because my only experiences of dealing with this virus and I sometimes wonder how different would my life be if I hadn't been diagnosed with AIDS on July 9th, 1989 I mean it just, you know, completely turned my life upside down would I be here today, you know, um, there, not here, you know would I, I don't know, I'm not sure, you know and so it's like how is it that in doing this teaching, uh, how is it to bring that sense of having the whole rug completely pulled out from underneath you without having to be infected by some damn virus or other, you know? And uh, it's a question I'd like to you know, just offer here, you know? You're my teachers. Seems like those 
palace walls that surrounded the Buddha have become the walls of our nursing homes and our mental asylums and our hospitals where we sort of hide people so that we can protect ourselves from what they're going through and that we can live a life insulated from the fact that there is all this dying going on around us and how is it particularly here in the West where we seem so adept at insulating ourselves from what indeed is happening all around us anyway um, how, how do we in this life live with an appreciation of death I mean you know, it was, you know when Princess Diana was killed it was, it was so heartbreaking and um, You know, rightly so, I mean, I'm, it's just a tragedy beyond measure. But the fact is, on that day, two and a half million other people died also, you know. And, you know, the outrage, which certainly was justifiable, but, you know, one wonders about the outrage that we live on a planet where two and a half million people are dying every day, and we're so disconnected from that and what a violence that does to our hearts and what a violence it does to the quality of our lives and how do we you know that's why I ask myself why did I have to get a diagnosis in order to get through to whatever little degree I have the delusion that I'm going to live forever you know and that was where my question came from I think it's a really good question and one that I think about a lot and as I was doing the meditation um, I wasn't feeling I wasn't able to feel it directly and I've always known that I was going to die and I've always known it deeply and intellectually and I've experienced a lot of death other people's deaths in my life and um, even given that I haven't experienced it deeply and so I don't think that there's any way to have it affect your life in positive ways unless you are taken by the scruff of the neck. And that's the conclusion that I come to. Mm-hmm. And that's what I see all the time in people who have you know, certain behaviors that are very destructive to them as well, um, that until they get that wake-up call, like, oh, you have uh, you've been smoking cigarettes for years and years, you have emphysema, oh, then, then their eyes open and they realize, oh, I better quit smoking, I better turn my life around. But it's only when it's only when you're you're taken by the scruff of your neck that you can truly integrate it into your life and into the way you live from day to day and into your consciousness from day to day. And I don't see that I can because I haven't been taken by the scruff of the neck. Other people I know have and appreciate it and feel compassion and feel that that experience is profound and amazing and 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 but somehow I think that it's in our nature that we just simply don't act on things until we're shocked into doing it. Thank you. If I could take it just one step further, it's like, you know, I live with like constant pain in my body, so it's like a constant reminder. But give me two or three days when it's like low grade, you know, off the front burner. Start feeling a little immortal here and there, you know. <laughs> so it's shameless, you know. 
assumption that I'm going to live longer than you. And that just is not true, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing thing to think about that. You've been given a diagnosis. I don't yet have a diagnosis. And so, of course, I assume you know, that there's not a bus with my yeah. name on it. You, know, or you see, that's the big joke, really. I mean, you know, it's like I sit up here and I'm like the sort of designated tragedy. You know? <laughs> but, but really, you know, uh, we're all in the same boat. You know? I mean, I'm, I, I just feel those waves, you know, or not only me, but some of us feel the waves a little more distinctly. I mean, it reminds me when I sat that retreat at IMS I was telling you about, when I like, had that meltdown. And I was sitting in the back of the hall and looking over the heads of people and feeling exactly as you said, how, like, I'm going to die. I'm really going to die. And there was a feeling of gratitude. There was a feeling of gratitude that I knew. And I looked over the heads of these people and I had this, what at the time felt like an unthinkable thought. I wonder if these people are going to die before me. And they don't know. And today, I look back, and of those 80 or 90 people, I don't think there's anybody here on that retreat with me, but of those 80 or 90 people, I know six of them who are gone. Six of them who are gone. Please, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Well, I was just thinking, uh, when you used the word um, outrage, and uh, I used to love that Dylan Thomas line that you might go gentle into that good night, but I'm not sure that that's really the most serviceable attitude. Uh, I mean, it sounds very dramatic and rhetorical, but maybe the content of, of what he's expressing in that line is not uh, very skillful. And uh, I came primarily because uh, I'm, a, I'm a physician and uh, not very many days go by without somebody that I like or feel I know very well uh, passing away and uh, for 15 years each time it happens it's uh, you know, extremely painful and if it happens say in the morning and there are 20 people to see in the afternoon. Yeah, you don't want to, in a sense, penalize the 20 people that are, have appointments in the afternoon. Uh, and so I've been struggling uh, with, and also, you know, I mean, you don't want to. I don't. I don't want to, uh, you know, bum out the rest of my week because it's going to happen again the next week, and if we string enough of those weeks together. You know, then you know, my life is going by too, and I'm feeling bad about this. So uh, <coughs> I feel that I've been reaching through through the Buddhism. I feel like I've been reaching some kind of accommodation uh, for this. And I had a an 85-year-old uh, gentleman who passed away last week that we I mean, for years we used to joke and. Uh, and when he came into the hospital for the last time, I, I said to myself, you know, in three, four days, I'm going to be seeing this man dead. Uh, and then uh, three or four days later, you know, I went in to see him dead, and uh, his family was there. Uh, and I guess what I'm trying to say is, 
There's some, I guess there's something there. You say it, you say it yourself, but that transition is just such a weird, it's, uh, you know, there's something uh, very mysterious about it. And I think this time, for the, for the first time ever, I had some sense what I, what I used to think was really uh, uh, pretty crazy, but I had some sense for the first time of some type of astral, uh, this fellow like floating above his body in the, in the room with me. Uh, and then there are these tri- more trivial cases where you just have people that, that complain, you know, because they've got something that everybody has, and everybody's going to have it, like arthritis, and there's nothing you can do about it. And they, you know, and, and to put that into a larger context, and you want to say to them, you know, look, uh, you know, your life is decreasing continuously. <laughs> Stop whining. <laughs> Would you share that quote again that you mentioned at the beginning? Oh, um, from the Dylan Thomas poem, uh, Do not go gentle into that good night, rage, rage against the dying of the light. But that's the type of rage that we're saying. It's not, I mean, it just puts you in more conflict. Yeah. is Roki. He says, sometimes a man stands up during supper and walks outdoors and keeps on walking because of a church that stands somewhere in the east and his children say blessings on him as if he were dead. And another man who remains inside his own house stays there inside the dishes and in the glasses so that his children have to go far out into the world towards that same church which he forgot. Enjoy the lunch. this afternoon continue the tradition, if I could call it that, that we began this morning of, of making this journey together with these ancient death awareness practices through the medium of stories, just telling some more stories. And I was um, reminded as we were walking around the loop that I was very fortunate when in the lap of the Buddha was published, I only got one angry letter <laughs> from someone. And the angry letter I got was from this very indignant person in Connecticut who said to me that the only quote that 
he really liked in the book was one that I had no source for and that he, he was really uh, sort of irate that I was another one of these authors who used quotes and he didn't know where they came from and it was a long, long letter, very angry. And I said in the book that I didn't know where it came from, but I liked it so much that I wanted to use it. And, and I'd like to share that quote with you. <laughs> I, I, I live dangerously. <laughs> the obituary pages tell us of the news that we are dying away, while the birth announcements in finer print at the side of the same page inform us of our replacements. But we get no grasp from this of the enormity of the scale. There are seven and a half billion of us on the earth, and all seven and a half billion must be dead on schedule within this lifetime. The vast mortality involving something like 70 million people each year takes place in relative secrecy. Less than half a century from now, our replacements will have doubled the numbers. It's hard to see how we can continue to keep the secret with such multitudes doing the dying. I don't know where it's from, Cynthia. Yay, yes. It's by Lewis Thomas, and I believe it's from Rise of the Bell. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> well, you write the book's, going, no, the book's going into its fourth printing, so if you'll write that down for me, we'll, we'll do it. Send your new book to the guy. Send your new book to the guy. So I, I, I said two things this morning. One was that I had no idea where this afternoon really was going to go. I have a little clearer sense now. But one of the things I did promise was to speak a little of my time at this Burmese forest monastery in the early years of my practice where I had the great privilege of doing some very intensive death awareness practices that I would like to share with you today. And here again I invite you once more to use this information as lightly or as deeply as feels appropriate for you. For some people, this information can be a little difficult. And then just step back in your mind from if, if it feels that way. And if it feels absolutely perfect, then of course you're invited to come as close to this as possible. It's always a little difficult for me sharing this and even writing about it because one, at the, on the one hand, wants to be as clear and as upfront as possible, and on the other hand, one wants to be skillful in the use of this information, that it's not terrifying and therefore not serving its purpose well. So um, I offer it in that spirit and ask you to, to use it as judiciously as feels appropriate. Again, I'll be reading some from the manuscript of my new book. On the bend of a winding road in a redwood forest stood the monastery. The buildings were rather dark and damp. Crimson-robed nuns and monks were busy about the place. Everyone was preparing for the arrival of the head monk. I was told that he was extremely old and had spent most of his life living in the forests there. He'd been a mendicant, homeless and solitary. I was also told in hushed voices that he was an enlightened master and highly respected in his country. 
For a week or so I worked in the garden, helped in the kitchen and chopped wood. I talked with the monks and nuns and, many, and met many Burmese women and men who visited with offerings and food. Early in the morning the nuns, the monks, the laity gathered in the meditation hall to chant the refuges and precepts. I felt right at home. The monks lived under 227 precepts dating back to the era of the Buddha. The Buddha said at the time that if those in robes were fully mindful, no precepts would be necessary. Until then, he said, they applied. <laughs> All these rules and regulations seemed rather onersome and tiresome at first, but later I came to understand that they do provide a very powerful context in which to practice meditation. I was invited to join the order of monks prior to the Sayadaw's arrival. The Sayadaw is the Burmese name for a, a great meditation teacher. In retrospect, giving up the everyday life to enter the monkhood was a further step away from the life I'd left behind. This was after I was in New York, as I spoke about earlier. I recognized in the nuns and monks around me a sincerity of spirit and a single-pointed resolution to awaken that reflected back to me the self-same potential and possibility within myself. At the time, it did not feel like a big deal, really. I felt that I was giving up a life, after all, that seemed to have less and less meaning anyway. I was ready and ripe for surrender and renunciation. I decided to ordain. Having my hair shaved and cut was a sobering experience. Two monks giggled and laughed as they happily sheared and razored my scalp. I felt somewhat annoyed. Later, through a translator, they told me that my head looked like the surface of the moon, full of craters. When I looked in the mirror, I was shaken and shocked. I'd never seen myself this strong. And I speak here about my time in the army in South Africa, which I won't go into. I was given robes and instructed how to wear them. My lacquer bowl was black and lidded. In a long and arduous ceremony at a sacred ordination ground among the trees, I was inducted into the 2,500-year-old order of Buddhist monks. My name was Dharma Thami, Prince of the Dharma. I was given a tent in the forest and began my time in the order. Life was utterly simple, one meal a day, meditation day and night. The community came together for meals, meditation, chanting and talks. Otherwise, I was on my own. Food was taken in the classical way, one bowl of sustenance eaten before midday. Nothing else except clear liquids could be had afternoon. All food and gifts had to be offered to us. We were not permitted to ask for anything, including more food. We ate what was offered, and I prayed for a full bowl every day. <laughs> and there's a whole lot about the food trip. <laughs> including this temper tantrum that I had uh, when they forgot to put a hamburger in my bowl and everybody else had had one. <laughs> uh, after meals, I washed my bowl and often walked deep into the forest where I covered myself with a robe and napped at the base of a tree. One day I awoke to find a deer peering under my robes, sniffing and rubbing her watery nose against mine. We stared at one another, 
I remained still and silently began extending thoughts of loving kindness to her. She often visited me and lurked nearby when I returned to my favorite tree. Living a monastic life, practicing meditation and studying his teachings, I felt very close to the Buddha. My own way, I believe, I felt the relief he must have known when he left the family palace and renounced his princely life for the life of a penniless forest dweller in search of truth. Unencumbered by all my possessions, I sensed the power of renunciation and surrender to a life devoted to love and understanding. I was zealous about meditation. I was reluctant to leave my forest dwelling for any reason whatsoever. At the monastery, about six weeks after my ordination, I felt I fell very ill. I'm like m midway between being able to, to read and not. The fever, the swollen glands, the dizziness, the coughing and sleeplessness baffled the various doctors I visited. In retrospect now, I understand that this was the classic onset of HIV infection. Even then, Way back in 1982, the virus and my body were already locked in a pitch battle with one another. After a month, the symptoms subsided. The virus, even then, was beginning its massive replication in my bloodstream, and eight years later I would be stung with the news that I had AIDS. It was fortuitous that in the light of what lay ahead, I was introduced to an ancient death awareness meditation practice which focused on the 32 parts of the body. These included the hair of the body, the nails, the teeth, the skin, the flesh, the bones, the liver, the brain, the blood, and so forth. And systematically, day after day, we monks and nuns directed attention to these 32 parts of the body. Walking in the forest, eating a meal, lying in bed before sleep, in sitting and walking meditation, I repeated the words endlessly, hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin. Slowly my mind became increasingly peaceful and highly concentrated as I repeated the phrases. At times I felt riveted by the words and images that arose. Sometimes I would speak the words out loud deep in the forest, and other times I recited them silently. From time to time, image w images would arise of these different parts of my body. And then other times, I would deliberately visualize the part. Ceaselessly, day and night, I continued the practice. It was my privilege to work closely with a wonderful old Burmese monk who lived at the monastery. He guided me and gave encouragement during difficult times. He was particularly interested in those times when the experience of a solidity and stability of body fell away and dissolved into an experience of dissolution and incessant flux. As my concentration deepened, what I'd always felt to be a safe and dependable body, intact and sure, now kept dissolving into rapidly changing elements, just moment to moment change on every level. I continued to repeat the phrases. Although at time my heart was gripped by a wild fear, I continued zealously. I began experiencing a feeling of detachment from my body and my long-time fascination with it began to evaporate 
as I open to its collective composition. And here are a further number of the 32 parts. So open to its collective composition, the pus, the spleen, the bile, the dung, the phlegm, and the rest of the 32 parts. The emotions of lust and sexual desire were nowhere in sight. Seeing and experiencing the body in all its lovely, inglorious and frank aspects, I no longer felt the gridlock of attachment to my physical form most of the time. I knew I was ex truly experiencing the body as it was for the first time. It seemed then that my body was nothing more than a miracle of changing and harmonious parts, dissolving and reconstituting moment to moment. Nothing felt fixed or stable. I remember at times thinking, this is incredible. What on earth am I doing here? I'm a little white South African boy, far from home, an accountant, head shaven, robe, meditating day and night. My mind would try to pull me back into the body, into the old ways of experiencing myself. In desperation, I labeled and categorized myself wildly. I am a gay man, I'm a political radical, a world traveler, a high liver. I was tormented with erotic dreams. I felt guilty at times for wearing the robes and sporting a holy demeanor while wild sexual fantasies tried to seduce me back into a wholehearted identification with my body and self-images and into a negation of all I was experiencing in the meditation. It was a wild and hellish time. And fear escalated as insight deepened into the absurdity of ever believing that I was this body. Clearly every cell was arising and vanishing ceaselessly and relentlessly. Nothing bodily felt reliable, certain or dependable. And like a thunderbolt, the Christians hit me one day. How on earth could I be something that manifestly did not enduringly exist? Who am I? What am I? What is not changing here? Upon what can I depend? If each of these 32 parts is unstable and in constant flux, as I see now, the sum of these parts must be unreliable also. The simple practice evoked a fear of death more powerful than I'd ever experienced before. My identity now felt fully uncertain, insecure, and under siege. The privilege of having done this meditation in the beginning years of my practice is increasingly clear to me now, as time passes on. By jolting and shaking the core of my identification with the body, I was left with a myriad of disquieting questions relating to who or what I truly was. This questioning has become a litany that has continued ever since. Unknowingly, I'd begun the long journey home by engaging the fear of death, opening to the truth of my mortality, and beginning a saner and more honest relationship with my body. One night, in the middle of the night, all the nuns and monks were assembled and we were spirited off under the cloak of darkness to a nearby university, to the Department of Anatomy, and we were taken in by one of the members of the community 
um, I don't think it was altogether kosher what they were doing, but we were taken in and the head nun asked us each to sit beside a table and so we each sat beside a table. It was very dark, it was a huge, huge room and we meditated for about half an hour. And then she asked us each to just lean over and open these huge big black zippered envelopes that were beside us. And the table was right here next to me. And I opened the zipper and lying beside me was the body of a woman who must have been maybe 40 years old. I can see her so clearly still. She's lying there, she had an earring in her ear, her toenails were painted. She, she, she looked somewhat peaceful and we were invited by the head nun to extend loving-kindness to the person who was beside us. And she came to me, um, the nun, and asked me to move around to the other side of the table. And I moved around the other side of the table, and I was absolutely shocked to see that this woman had been sliced completely in half. And it was an incredible moment for me. I mean, my mind was so concentrated and awake having done this practice and looking at this body it felt like in that instant um, in some way my relationship with my own body changed irrevocably could never go back to the place it was before it was this miracle of complexity before me and she really invited me and encouraged me with such respect and love you know to to relate to each of the organs I saw in front of me and she encouraged me to to like see the miracle of moving a tendon in the foot which I could do and the toe move, you know, and to see that what I'd related both all my life to myself and to other people was just the absolute fraction of a millimeter thick. It was an irrevocable shift for me and an, an immense privilege having been able to do that. We spent a long time there, many, many hours into that night. And gradually, as there was a, a deeper settling into the depth of truth that surrounded us, I was able to look around me and just take in the, um, the step beyond what we were talking about earlier, the walls, the palace walls that had been gifted for me. I felt like I stepped through Siddhartha's palace walls into this place. There was this huge big swimming pool filled with formaldehyde in which there were bodies that were placed for the students to work on. And um, I... Uh Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.